0: Welcome to episode one of Pub Crawl, a publishing podcast about reading, writing, books, and occasionally booze. I'm your host, S.J. Jones, called J.J. I'm an author and erstwhile editor. And I'm your co host, Kelly Van Sant. I'm a publishing contracts manager and a freelance editor. All right. We are both contributors with the Publishing Crawl blog, and together we have over 15 years of industry experience. So today's topic, we're going to be covering a uh, query or representation in a sort of publishing 101 series, mm-hmm. if you want to get started. Uh, all right, so first of all, let's just talk about what the basics of what a query is. Uh, we're going to talk about how to structure one, how to write one. So at this point, we're just going to assume everyone's already written their manuscript. <laughs> um, you know, although it, some people do find it helpful to write a query first. Really? Uh Yeah, I mean, because when you look at a query, it's basically what it is. When you write a query, it's a cover letter for your book. Mm -hmm. Say, you know, you're sending out cover letters to a whole bunch of agents for your manuscript. Is essentially what a query is. And for some people, thinking about a query sort of helps them conceptualize the concept of their book as a whole, which is why some people find it helpful to write a query first. Uh, I don't work that way, and I don't really recommend people work that way. But maybe that's just because I'm a panther, so I don't necessarily know how things are going. To I mean, end. I think I think it's
1: an interesting exercise, but I would say that if you do write a query first, that you know before you finish the book, after you finish the book, the query that you would write at that point would probably be very different. So if yes. you've written a query yes. first, that's probably not the one that you want to send. You probably want to write another one once you finish the manuscript. And that would be the one that you sent.
0: Anyway, so basically the query comes down to, as I said before, a cover letter where you say, Dear agent, you know, this is my book titled blank. And it's in this genre, complete at X number of words. Now, hopefully you've done some market research as to which agents represent which genres. um, Obviously the title of your book and to be specific about what genres and categories your book falls into. Now we can cover that a little bit more in depth later, but this is just the basics of a query. And then after that, so aside from your intro, then you go and talk about your book. You want to be as concise as possible. You want, basically in about two to three paragraphs, you want to talk about who your main characters are, what the premise is, what the stakes are, And and any publishing credits, if you have any, um, if you're a debut and you don't have any publishing credits to your name, it's not a big deal. It's just this is more for people who write nonfiction. So if you want to write, let's say, a self-help book, then any sort of credits you might have on the self-help topic would be useful. But mostly the, the bulk of the query is just really what your book is about. It's going to be actually pretty similar to what you see on the back cover of a book in the bookstore. Um, I I wrote a post about writing copy on Publishing Crawl, which we can link later in the show notes, uh, that you can look at that I've sort of broken down into a quote formula about how to write copy, how to identify different aspects of, you know, your book, the inciting incident, etc., etc., that you want to put into your query. So that's the basics of a query. Um, So if we want to talk about why you want a query, uh, so Kelly, you can field that one. I will. I did have a question for you first, though. What are some
1: things that you should not put in a query? Because I feel like there's a lot of stuff that doesn't actually belong in a query that people
0: might not know about. Well, like I said, a query should be a professional document. So there are things when I'm looking at a query, I tend to kind of be turned off when something is gimmicky. So if a query is written in the voice of the main character mm-hmm. or something to that effect, I'm not saying it it never works, but I would say 99.9% of the time I'm not interested in that. I just want to know what the story is. So that's something that I don't really like to see. Uh, the Another thing that I... This is not necessarily don't put it in your query so much as... The, you know, something like a fictional novel, <laughs> <laughs> the term fictional novel, all, all novels are fiction, just to just clear, clear that out there. Up there. Mm-hmm. Clear that up. All novels are fiction. So if you say fictional novel, it's, you know, kind of a redundant mm-hmm. um, or any sort of comparison to major, major commercial works like this book will appeal to readers of Twilight and Harry <laughs> Potter, and you're sort of like, well, that's everyone right, that can yeah. help me. <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. My favorite one uh, from back in my uh, days at a literary agency was I really um, was bothered when people would write things like, my mother or grandchildren or cousin or best friend's book, who best friend who really reads a lot of books and loves them so much, thinks this is the best novel ever. And oh no. <laughs> everyone will love it because this person really loves it. And it's like those kind of endorsements are not um, generally endorsements in general for fiction are not something that belongs in a query. Again, the rules are slightly different if you have um, a nonfiction platform. You know, if you have an endorsement and have been on Oprah and Oprah gave away your product or your product for her 100 days of giveaways or whatever then that's fine to mention. (laughs) But in general, for fiction, you don't really need the endorsement of your husband or your
0: mother or your grandmother or the kid next door. Right. The other thing to remember about a query is you want to keep it pretty short. Um, I think the sweet spot for most queries, and I mean the meat of the query, not including the introduction and your credits, if you have any. I'd say the sweet spot is between 250 and 400 words. So if you can kind of get your query, the meat of your query, down to that word count frame, then I think you're pretty good. And you also don't need to give away every single plot detail of your book. You really just want to be pretty concise about this is my main character, the premise, the stakes, this is, you know, what happens. You, you don't even have to give away the end, because mm-hmm. if you look at the back copy of a book, it's really only gives you the plot points of like the first half, first mm-hmm. act, because... You know, you're know, you supposed to compel the reader to want to continue reading. So that's really what, when you're sending queries out to agents, that's really what you're sending. This is like the back cover blurb for my book. Um, if you're interested, you can contact me to read the whole manuscript. So that's basically you know, what a query is and what the function of a query is. So if you want to field the question about why you would want to query, Kelly. Why you would want to query... Yes. So
1: especially nowadays with self-publishing really coming into its own and being a really viable, um, financially sound way for some writers to publish. Um, There's a lot of success stories to be found in self-publishing. But in terms of commercial publishing, if you're talking about getting your book published by, you know, certainly any of the big five publishing houses, or even any of the um, notorious boutique publishing houses um, and indie publishers that are around the country, that's where an agent really becomes necessary. An agent does a lot of things for a writer. Um, one of the most important things that an agent does and why you want to query one to gain representation is that they have contacts. They know editors in the business. They know which publishing houses are looking for which things. They have personal one-on-one connections with people and will know who to match up your book with. They'll know the right people to send it to for a first round of submissions, for a second round of submissions. Um, Their contacts are really invaluable and it takes a long time and a lot of work to build up that contact list um, you know no matter how much research a writer does on their own an agent has an established you know working relationship with these people they've worked with these editors before they may be part of a larger house that has established relationships with these publishers um, and those contacts are really invaluable an agent also Well, often, I think more and more these days, it's really common for agents to be editorial agents where they will uh, help you revise your book even before it goes on submission to make it, you know, as good as they possibly can. And then once your book is picked up by a publisher, there'll be even more revisions. And, you know, I know that for a writer, you want to query when your book is as good as you think you can possibly make it. And so you might be sitting there saying, well if it's as good as I can possibly make it, you know, how can it possibly be revised further? What kind of editorial feedback can there be? And you would be surprised because a fresh set of eyes from a professional who knows what they're doing um, really can transform a book and take it just to a completely new level. Um, You know, and then an editor can take it even beyond what an agent can do. So anyone who thinks that their book doesn't need editing, it does. No matter how great it is, everyone has an editor um, for a good reason. And then the other thing that agents do beyond, you know, having the contacts to make the sale and negotiate the sale and to help you um, take it to that next editorial letter level to be submission ready is they handle the business of your book sale. And it might seem like things kind of stop once the book is sold and then the agent doesn't really have anything else to do. But that's not true. Your agent can act as a mediator in correspondence if you're having an issue with your editor or if, um, you know, if you're having trouble getting a timely response because editors are really overworked and everyone's clamoring for their attention, um, the agent can really get in there and kind of say, hey, my author is owed a response. You need to get back to her. Um, Agents will handle things like your payments. Um, They will pass along tax forms. They will, um, you know, some agents, if you've retained any sub-rights, the agency might be set up to deal with those sub-rights in-house. So if you've, you know, retained translation rights, then your agent will be selling those rights overseas, or they might be selling the rights to your audio book. The role of an agent really does extend significantly beyond You know just the initial sale and they're really invaluable they're great at what they do Um, and it frees you up if you don't have to worry about things like getting your royalty statements or you know getting your tax forms figured out then you're free to write and that's what a great agent will really do they'll facilitate all the business stuff for you so that you can write
0: yeah and as somebody who you know when I was an editor at a big five and you know, when I wrote and queried my manuscript, people were like, well, can't you just do it yourself? I mean, I could. Theoretically, I could because I had a lot of contacts in the industry, but I really wanted an agent. I, mm-hmm. There are so many things that an agent can do that is well worth the 15% commission that they take. Uh, most agencies will have established boilerplate with each of the big five houses. So each of the imprints will generally have like a standard publishing contract, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and those terms are obviously in the most favor of the publishing house and not necessarily in the most favor of the author. But an agent or an agency boilerplate, like uh, say a, a literary agency has pre-negotiated many of the terms of this contract, um, usually those terms are much more favorable to the author. And mm-hmm. it would it's a lot easier... To, to get those favorable terms if you have an agent when there is a history of an established relationship between the publishing house and this agency. Um, also, there are just some, you know, certain things that... Having an agent there as a mediator is great because they can be the bad guy for you. Mm-hmm. They can be the... You know, it, most of the time, the relationship between editor and author should be good, and it usually is. But, you know, there's certain sticky things about business that sometimes you just don't want to get involved in that and having Mm -hmm. an agent there to just come in and say, look, this is, this is in the best interest of my author and, you know, and removing yourself directly from that can be really beneficial in terms Mm -hmm. of the relationship you have with your publishing house. Um, And even as if you are self-publishing your work, I know many authors who are, quote, hybrid authors that have traditional publishing deals and they do self-publish. Right. And having an agent can assist you with that as well. I know certain agencies provide digital services. They can get mm-hmm. their clients' work into um, like the digital library system. I think it's Overdrive. Overdrive is what it's called. Or they can sell the sub-rights of your self-published work. Like, so even if your book is self-published in, let's say, English-speaking territories, they may be able to get translation rights for you or audio rights or even uh, film rights like Mm -hmm. Andy Weir's The Martian I believe he had a film deal before he had a traditional publishing deal Mm -hmm. for that book so you know, there are plenty I'm of I'm so excited good. to read that book. Oh, I've I have it on hold at the library. <laughs> it's really, really, really good. Uh, yeah, it, uh, a friend of mine, Amy Kaufman, she recommended it to me as like a beachy sci-fi read. Mm-hmm. Um, and it absolutely is true. It's, you know, one of those books you just kind of blast right through. Um, mm. it's, it's very hard science fiction. Like all the science fiction, all the science in it, I think, was very well researched. I've heard that. It's, it's very, very good. I, I highly recommend it. Um, but yeah, that's that's a case where he was self-published first um, and had a film deal and, mm-hmm. and got a publishing deal, a traditional publishing deal after that. So mm-hmm. you know, there are many reasons to have agents.
1: Yeah, and the other thing about
0: agents too, if
1: you really want to distill it down, is they can be your biggest cheerleaders. They, you know, when you query an agent and they get back to you, agents get hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of queries a day sometimes and I know that it can be frustrating and depressing to be querying and querying and feel like no one is ever going to get back to you. But when an agent does get back to you, it's because they were sparked by something in your query. They care about your writing. They care about you and they want to work with you. They get hundreds of queries a day and out of those 100 that agent reached out to you with an offer of representation and they they want you to ex- succeed they want you to you know achieve all the things that writers dream of achieving they will be your best cheerleaders all the agents that i see that i'm friends with and that i follow on twitter are constantly announcing you know their authors most recent pub deals and their book birthdays and just all of their accomplishments, even beyond, um, you know, the publishing world. I've seen agents tweet about non-publishing-related accomplishments that their authors have had. And they're really there because they care about you, they care about your work, um, and they want to be a part of that. And, you know, sometimes when you're writing and you're in that dark place... Where, you know, nothing ever feels like it will, you know, come out right or be finished or see the light of day or anything. An agent is there to help you through that. And I think that, too, is a really wonderful part um, about having an agent. Beyond, you know, all the great stuff that they do on a professional basis, but a lot of uh, agent-author relationships can also grow to be personal friendships.
0: Yeah, and, and there is something to be said about somebody who's pulled you out of the slush, And this person was the first professional person in the industry to be an advocate for your work. Mm -hmm. And that person, you know, obviously, agent-author relationships can, you know, change and shift over time. But, you know, it's a partnership. It's a business partnership. But they were your advocate first and foremost. They were your first advocate. And there's, you know, that passion says a lot, I think, for what they do. They, Mm -hmm. They do out of love.
1: So now that we've convinced everyone that getting an agent is a great thing to do, how do you go about figuring out which
0: agents you should query? Ah, uh, yes. Um, well, nowadays, I mean, the years before the internet, which actually wasn't all that long ago, um, there used to be guides that they published, like guides to literary agents that you'd be able to <laughs> buy in the bookstore. I don't know if they still do those. They may, may they must, they might. they They might. Um, But you know, it's that guide is exactly what it sounds like. It just has their name, their contact information, what genres they represent, um, maybe a couple of their big sales. But nowadays, there are online resources for that. There is Publishers Marketplace. Mm -hmm. Publishers Marketplace. You do need to pay a fee. like a membership fee, like a yearly fee, I believe, to be able to access all parts of that website, including all the deals that ever get made. But I think that is a pretty valuable resource. Um, But in terms of free resources, there are things, or websites called Agent Query, Mm -hmm. uh, Query Tracker. Um, There are, you know, if you are at all around Twitter, (laughs) there are plenty of places or just people, on agents on Twitter. I mean, I always thought of Twitter as publishing's water cooler. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, you know, a lot of agents are there, a lot of authors are on there, a lot of editors and publicists and everything, they're all on Twitter. So I often find that to be the best way to research what an agent is like, what they, what they might be like, and other places, other online resources to find agents, uh, predators and editors which is mm-hmm. a list of of vetted agents and and publishers um, and agents and publishers that have may that may have committed some cardinal sins or are scams or things like that it's just, it's, right. it's you know cuz it's very easy especially if you don't know anything about this business when somebody gives even the slightest bit of interest in you you're like oh and and you jump right on that boat and you but you, you know, doing some research have, has this agent made a sale? If so, where have they sold? You know, mm-hmm. and the other thing is if an agent asks for money up front, never, 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 never. They're not a real agent, they are what my friend calls a schmagent. Yep, um, nope. no reading fees, not, no, no editorial nothing. fees, nothing, no, no. fees. The, the agent only makes money when the author makes money, like after a deal, after the book has been sold that is when the agent takes their cut. But they never ask for money up front from you. So that's the first red flag when it comes to, you know, when you're contacting agents. But, you know, these are websites. I think, in particular, Query Tracker is pretty well updated and pretty regularly Mm -hmm. updated. It will say what genres the agents represent. And by genres, I mean, you know, mystery, thriller, fantasy, science fiction, romance those are generally the genres. Like, if you go to a bookstore and look at all the bookshelves and the sections of the bookstore, those are generally the categories and genres. And most agents, I mean, I honestly think the best agents tend to narrow their focus a little bit. So mm. it's very rare to see good agent specialize in everything, you know, all right. across the board. Um it's usually three to five Yeah, I'd say it's things a three to snacks. five, you know. And, and, and reading taste, um, if you look on Publisher's Marketplace and you're researching an agent, you'll see some of the deals that they've made. You'll see what sorts of books that they've sold and to which houses. Sometimes you'll kind of get a ballpark figure as to how much. Um, so that's... When you're researching agents, you do want to target agents who have sold in your category, or if they mm-hmm. have, if they're younger agents, because all agents have to start somewhere. Of course, and that doesn't automatically mean that they're, you know, frauds. Right. If they're a younger agent, it usually helps if they are with an established agency, um, mm-hmm. with one or more agents with a with a history of sales. You know, most agents start off as assistants to established agents. And when they start taking on their own list, the person that they're assisting will generally help them with their contacts Mm -hmm. and everything. So even if this person listed on the agency website has not sold anything yet, if other agents in that agency have sold other things, then this is probably a younger agent starting out looking to build their list. Mm -hmm. And sometimes those are the best agents to query as well because they are hungry. They are looking for authors Mm -hmm. to help, you know, to to make their first sales with
1: and they have the time to dedicate to, you. you know, they're not a veteran agent with 55 authors that they're juggling in the air. You know, they could really dedicate themselves to you and your work. And so, yeah, there's, you know, if the agency itself looks reputable, then that's a good thing to go by even if the agent doesn't have any sales.
0: Um, and there are also forums and, and boards. I think um, SCBWI has a mm-hmm. forum, I think they're called Verla K or the Blue, Ber- Blue Boards. Um, there's a man named Chuck Zambucino, who has a blog, and I know he periodically interviews agents, what they're looking for. Um, Jessica Sinsheimer, she's another agent. I think she's at Sarah Jane Freeman. Um, she has a project called Manuscript Wishlist, Mm. where a lot of agents have submitted what they're looking for. So there are plenty of resources online for free. Um, so I think, in fact, sometimes researching agents could be the f- most fun and most easy part <laughs> of the querying process. Um, so, and, and also, if you actually look at your favorite books, if you look at the acknowledgments... I was going to say the same thing. They will generally acknowledge their agent. So if you you know look at that, and then you can look up their agent that way. Um, and it is something that's like once I started in publishing, I started every book I buy. I now look at the copyright page and the acknowledgments. Mm-hmm. Whereas when I was just a regular old consumer, I just kind you of never over those. do that. I know.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but now there's so much interesting information
0: to be found. Yes. So. Um, Anyways, that's basically how to go about researching which agents to query. Um, So let's also talk about then what happens when you get that offer of representation, Um, what the sort of ins and outs of everything is. Mm -hmm. So
1: if you get an offer of representation and you decide that that is an agent that you want to work with, you know, and, and, you know, I encourage you to be really discerning about that. This person is going to have a really intimate role in your career, and you want to make sure that they're the type of person that you can work well with, Um, you know, so do make sure that it's the right person, the right agent for you. But let's say it is. It's the perfect match. Um, You are given an offer of representation, and then a couple of things um, happen from that point on. So... I don't know if this is across the industry, completely standard with no exceptions. I think there may be a few exceptions, um, but in general, you might receive an agency agreement. Agency agreements are at will. So at any point in time, you could part ways with your agent or your agent could part ways with you. Um, The agreement that you sign is basically to outline, it's usually like one page, very brief, and it will outline what your agent will do for you, which is, you know, represent your work. Most agents, when they take you on, are taking you on to represent all of your work, the book that you queried and your future projects that may come up. Um, so they will represent your work for the work that they do in submitting and making sales and managing subrights and all of the other things that they do they will take a commission. Commission uh, industry standard is 15%, so 15% of everything that you make, that includes your advances, that includes your royalties. Um, Any money that comes into you, the agent would take 15%. There's a couple of ways that that can be handled in terms of accounting. Um, Most of the time, kind of the traditional way that it's done is that the publisher will pay the full amount owed to the agency and then the agency will cut a new check for that amount minus their 15%. So they'll take their 15% off the top and they'll issue you a new check for the remaining amount. Um, With more and more small boutique agencies popping up, um, I have seen it done where it will be stipulated in your publishing contract that advances are to be split. So the publisher will send your agent's 15% directly to your agent, and then the publisher will send the remaining 85% directly to you.
0: Um, That split can also happen if, say your agent, and you part ways. Yes, usually an addendum will be done to take care of that
1: um, in that case. And,
0: and the agency agreement will stipulate that the, this is the agent of record, and your publishing contract will stipulate that this that the agent who sold the book is the agent of record for that work. So yes, all so, future mo- yep. monies owed... The um, agent
1: will still take a commission. So even if you part ways with your agent... After a year after the book is sold, if the book continues to earn royalties after that year, the agent is still entitled to commission on those royalties.
0: Yeah, I mean, as Kelly said, the agency agreements are at will, and they're not, agents are not looking to scam you either. No. <laughs> uh, no. It is a very hard job. It's, you know, so much time and work and dedication, so they're not looking to scam you. Um, no, not at all so but the agency um, agreement is just you know just that 's like a a gentleman 's agreement you you say you 're the agent of record for this work um, and and it can depend i 've heard of some instances where an agent agrees only to take on one work one work and if they do agree to take on you know more, if it just stipulates that they will be your agent
1: for any projects that you work on, if you part ways with an agent and they haven 't sold
0: your book then they don't take a commission right, on that. Right, they don't, they don't have a commission on that. They only make money when you right. make money. And so if, if they've so, seen yeah. your book, you know, if you've submitted
1: it to them and, and they've taken a look at it but they haven't sold it, and then you decide, you know, this isn't really working out for me, I want to, you know, do something different, I'm going to part ways with you. Just because they've seen it doesn't mean that they get a commission on it. Um, you know, they have to sell the work, they have to demonstrably you know, have have done some work to earn you money for which they would take a commission. Um, so agency agreements in general are very short, straightforward. Um, you would sign them, uh, you'd sign your agency agreement, and then that's when the ball really gets rolling. Uh, like I said before, a lot of agents these days are editorial. They might want to go through the manuscript with you and do a revision or perhaps even two before they feel really strongly about it. Um, And that really is because it is such a competitive marketplace. You really want to send out the best possible thing that you can. Um, And agents, you know, will come at it with a fresh set of eyes. They'll come into it knowing what the market is like, knowing what the editors they're in contact with are looking for, um, you know, and they'll really help you make that manuscript shine. And then they'll send you out on submission. They'll, they'll. Which we'll, <laughs> we'll talk about. Yeah, that in that'll our next be another podcast. whole thing where we'll dive into the details of that. But they'll submit your book to editors. They will negotiate deals for you. Um, once a deal is accepted, you know the the agent can't accept a deal on your behalf. If they get an offer for the book, they have to come back to you and say, "Hey, we got this offer from this editor. It's this much money. It's you know da 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 da." da. Um, and then you get to decide whether or not you want to move forward sometimes in an auction situation there are
0: multiple offers and you can kind of weigh the pros and cons of each um and, and the agent would be able to guide you through those yes. pros and cons they'd be able to know the character of the house or the, the editor that's made the offer you know you may have competing offers from two different houses and she knows or he knows the agent knows this particular editor likes more romantic things, and maybe we'll probably push it in a more romantic direction. This other editor likes more plot driven things and will probably keep you know drive up those elements the, they They know the people with whom they're making these deals, so they should be able to advise you i mean the the final decision still rests with yes. you as the author, yes. but they will be able to to help you and, and you know or they may have a better idea of, of this particular houses. Marketing publicity department, having worked with them before on other books for their mm. other clients. So it, it just helps having somebody who has experience in the industry because writing, you know, aside from the business aspects of writing, writing just as an activity is so solitary. Yes. <laughs> and you're often in your own head and, and, and getting that outside perspective, not just editorial, but, editorially, but. Just outside perspective outside your head is really really helpful and, and I think an agent is an excellent soundboard for many other things. They can also assist you on what to work on next. say for example, they've signed you they, you've edited the work with them and it's on submission and now you're waiting And in this period of waiting, usually the best thing to do, which we will again cover <laughs> next week in more depth, is to work on your next mm-hmm. book and they may and if you have a couple of different ideas they may be able to tell you, um, hey, this idea sounds saleable. If you want to work on that, maybe focus your attention here. Um, they'll probably tell you not to work on a sequel until the first one's sold. Yeah. Um, you know, they'll 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 guide you here and there. And obviously, write what you want. Yes. Um, yes. But an agent should be able to say, you know, yes, I can. This is this will be workable in the market. Maybe if you tweak this or if you tweak that, you know, write what you want, and we'll see. How, how this will go, how maybe we can edit it. So they're just really good advisors. You know, they're career advisors when it comes mm-hmm. to it. So I think that pretty much wraps up our Publishing 101 querying slash representation yes. segment, unless we have any last thoughts or, or comments that we want to make before we move on. No,
1: I think that's it in general. If there's something about queries that we have not uh, covered that you're dying to know about, then. Um, you can also follow us out on Twitter, and we'll follow up later. But I think we covered pretty
0: much all the basics. Yeah, these are the basics. I mean, as I said, this is Publishing 101. I'm sure later on we could do more higher levels of publishing, like Publishing 201 or something, <laughs> Go to, to further yes. specific. We'll get into the meat of it. Yeah. We're gonna do. We're gonna do some really <laughs> great stuff in the future. So, all right. Well, then, so let's talk about what we're working on. Um, Any sort of writing or other creative projects that we're working on right now, Kelly? Mine would fall into the other creative projects category.
1: (laughs) Um, I'm not actively working on anything at the moment in terms of writing, although, you know, I always have ideas in the back of my head. But this week I have started uh, making my own sourdough starter from scratch. I know. I actually have the first loaf of what will be the actual bread versus just the starter, um, rising in my fridge. It's going to rise overnight tonight and then tomorrow I'm going to bake it. So I hope it works out. Um, I've been making bread from scratch for years and I love doing it. Um,
0: but this. Yeah. So one thing I missed about living with Kelly, is we were <laughs> we roommates were. by the way. Um, and she would bake bread like every Sunday and, ha- and the apartment would smell like baking bread. It's it really, great. <laughs> really
1: great. It's a wonderful hobby. And I know that bread intimidates a lot of people because it intimidated me, but I've been making it for years and it's been great, but I had never made that leap into sourdough because sourdough is so much more. (sighs) It's like finicky. It's like alive. (laughs) I mean, it is actually alive, and you have to literally feed it. um, You know, for days and days and days at a time. And mine is finally ready after about a week. It's been about seven days that I've been feeding it, and you have to keep it at the right temperature, and you have to make sure that it's, you know, getting the right amount of air and that it's this and that and the other thing. And it's so intensive and I'm so scared of it. <laughs> I'm so afraid that something is going to go horribly wrong. <laughs> um, or that, you know, it's gonna, it's gonna expand too much and flow out out of the bowl and across the kitchen and murder me in my sleep or something. Um, <laughs> it's very intense. And I, a friend of mine who has been encouraging me to make sourdough, um, has been teasing me because he said, you're talking about this starter, the way you talk about your daughter. I have a 20 month old daughter. (laughs) Um, and I really, I mean, no disrespect to my child, but like, it's kind of the same thing. (laughs) It's just this constant presence in the back of my head is what do I need to do to take care of the starter? Have I fed it today? Is it happy? Is it, you know, getting everything it needs? And so it's kind of taken (laughs) over my life. And so tomorrow is the big day, and I'm very excited. We'll see. It's sink or swim or, you know, bake or not bake. I don't know how
0: to extend that metaphor. but oh, I admire you because baking is not something that I do. I, I've been cooking a little bit more, but baking is still something that I'm just not, <laughs> I'm, I'm afraid of. It's, it's, <laughs> also, scary. it's scary. It is scary. And being a Californian, though, I do miss sourdough bread I, a lot. <laughs> We get a, we, Sourdough is pretty common in, in California restaurants, just like as an option
1: mm-hmm. for,
0: for bread. Well, um, it's what San Francisco is famous It or? is what San Francisco is famous for. So I do miss that, you know, moving east. Um, even like now that I move south, like so I moved from California to New York City. And of course, when you go to New York, there are all sorts of other types of breads I'd never really noticed before, like rye, <laughs> rye yeah. bread, not, not particularly common on the West Coast. Um it's and then so I, interesting.
1: Yeah, and then I've moved so ubiquitous
0: here. Yeah, and I've moved south and um biscuits obviously are a big thing here. So biscuits and cornbread, um, very big oh, in the south. Cornbread is so good. It is very good. And they're all very delicious. But you know, there are regional differences in the sorts of breads that people make and yes. I think that's I think that's really interesting. Um my creative endeavors at the moment, I am Still tinkering away at this uh, middle gray that I've been going back and forth on <laughs> for about ten Since years now. Since we met. Since we met, um, which is a long time actually, um, yeah. about nine drafts or so. And uh, but I did email my agent earlier today, and I said I am working on something, and I promise I'll get you a synopsis and like the first act. Shortly, Ooh. I didn't give my I didn't give her a definite time frame, but I <laughs> I did say that I would get it to her shortly. I mean, I have a fairly good. I mean, I do have a pretty good idea now of the story. Kelly knows how different the story has, how much the story has changed over the years. But mm. I think at this point, I think I actually have something that's a solid middle grade story. I mean, for mm. years I didn't even know what category this book fell into, so. Like, <laughs> I think it's a real middle-grade story, and it's got magic and adventure and friendship. And I was like, okay, okay, I just, you know, need to get over my baggage and start writing it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And the other creative project that I have been working on, (laughs) so when I first moved south, uh, I brought with me my dad's old armchair from college um, that he bequeathed to me. And he calls it his whiskey drinking chair. Was and that
1: the armchair that was in our apartment? It was. It it's is the same
0: one. It's the same armchair. <laughs> um, and admittedly, after forty years, this armchair was looking rather ragged and beat up. <laughs> um, for like you know, forty years, and I don't know how many moves that chair went through. But anyway, um, so he bequeathed it to me, and. Uh, my partner was like, you know, it looks pretty ratty. You know, we could maybe we should throw it out, and get a new one. I was like, no, no, this is dad's whiskey drinking armchair. We're going to keep it. Um, so I told him that I was going to reupholster it. <laughs> and that was two years ago. <laughs> and uh, I finally finished reupholstering it yesterday. Nice. <laughs> yes. And um, granted, I've never reupholstered anything before. So uh, I'm not one of those people who does practice anything. I just dive headfirst, which is more or less my writing philosophy as well. Mm-hmm. I just dive straight in. And uh, thankfully, my armchair actually turned out pretty well. I might take some pictures and put it up in the show notes uh, as well. <laughs> You um, should. But have you sat in it and had a glass of whiskey yet? I have sat in it, but I have not had a glass of whiskey with well, it yet. Well, it's
1: the whiskey-drinking chair. I know. It, it and is we do occasionally yet. talk about booze on this podcast. And yes. So... Yes Maybe you should get
0: on that um i think I think I will definitely break in that chair uh, once no I'm, you know what I'm not gonna wait for getting an ottoman. I'm just gonna sit in that chair <laughs> with a glass of whiskey and sit down. but I was so proud of myself because the last thing that got had to get done um and it really took a long time was I had to to sew the cushion cover mm-hmm. and I'd never sewn anything before. And, uh, well, I, you know, I, I've, like when I was little, I used to do quilting and stuff like that, but nothing major right, or, from, right. or useful, really. <laughs> um, so I said, okay, I'm going to go buy a sewing machine. I bought a sewing machine. It is, it, it is literally the most complicated machine I've ever touched in my <laughs> life. It's so hard. Um, and after kind of testing it out and, and figuring things out, I've sewn this cushion cover, complete with zipper, I did have to rip out my stitches about six times, but I do have a cushion cover, so that is my, that is my big creative accomplishment, because <laughs> I think I'm done, I'm done, <laughs> just like, I quit, <laughs> maybe I'll just tackle something easy next, like handkerchiefs, <laughs> you never do anything
1: the easy way, no, ever, I know,
0: <laughs> it's true, don't lie, <laughs> so, well, what are we reading, what are we reading, but well, you go first. Well, I I think the last time we had talked, I had said that I bought *Sorcerer to the Crown* by Zen Cho. Mm-hmm. Um, I am still reading that. Uh, I haven't been I haven't gotten as far into that book as I had wanted to, mostly because I am old, and by the time I get in bed and open up my book, I've pretty much fallen asleep like two pages later. <laughs> so I'm sort of waiting for an opportunity. And, and this weekend, my partner and I are going to Asheville. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's going for a conference. I'm just going to to basically bum off of him. But I'll have a lot of time to myself, and I think I'm going to just sit and finish Sorcerer to the Crown, which sounds... Which is, you know, it's Regency with with magic and people of color as protagonists and it is everything that is up my alley mm-hmm. and I know I will love this book I just haven't had the the time or the mind space to finish right. it and I'm also listening to Red Rising by Pierce Brown on audio I've actually already read Red Rising and Golden Sun, Um, but I was looking for books filled with lots of action to help me through the gym since I finished Queen of Shadows. it's still on my library
1: list! Oh, I'm on
0: hold. It's supposed to come in, like, in nine days
1: or something.
0: Oh, that's so long, though. I
1: know. Well, originally, when I first signed up for it, I was, like, number 64 or something on the list, so...
0: And considering how fast both you and I read, that nine days actually is a long time. It's a very long
1: time. Everything that I want to read is on hold at the library right now. I have four books on hold. Um, It's terrible. And so what I'm trying to do in terms of what I'm reading right now is just reading things to, like, fill that space until the books that I want to read are actually available. Because I'm really terrible in that I need to be in the mood to read a certain thing. And... If I'm not in that mood, I can't read it because I'll just hate it, even if I wouldn't hate it under normal circumstances. I'm very emotionally complex. <laughs> <laughs> and so so the three books that I have on hold at the library are Queen of Shadows by Sarah J. Moss, *Layer of Dreams by Libba Bray, and, as we said before, The Martian by Andy Weir. Um, and then there's one other one that I got on hold that is now escaping my memory, um, and so while I wait for those things to come in, I've been like trolling through my library, um, what's available to find to read in the meantime, because I'm on a very strict book diet at the moment. I'm not buying any new books. Uh, it's really excruciating, but I'm holding strong. And so, whew, someday, someday I'll be able to purchase books again. But for now, it's all the libraries. So grateful for libraries. The libraries are amazing. Um, and so while I wait, I am reading um, *Beauty Queens* by Libba Bray. kind of oh, I love that book. Yeah, I've never read it before, and I've heard good things. I've read her um, *Great and Terrible Beauty* series, and I really enjoyed those. I started *Going Bovine*, and I I must have been reading *Going Bovine* when I wasn't in the mood to read that kind of book because it's I mean it's really bizarre. It is, it is very, very surreal. Yes, it's very, super surreal, and I must have just not been in that headspace, and so I never finished it, because sometime after I turned, like, 29, I'm 33 now, sometime after I turned 29, I just decided life was too short, and I wasn't going to finish books that I wasn't enjoying anymore, um, whereas before, I'd always been like, I will finish this book if it kills me, and then it often felt like it was going to actually kill me to finish something Yeah, I was
0: like that. <laughs> I was like that until I started working in publishing, and then I was like, life is it's too short. short to read it's all the books. It's too short. It's, I don't want nah. to read. <laughs> so I'm reading, I'm about halfway
1: through um, Beauty Queens by Libba Bray, and then I just downloaded from the library uh, Serpentine by Cindy Cohen. Uh, oh, yes, that's also yeah. on my list. It's
0: all, that one's at on hold for me at the library right now.
1: Yeah, so I haven't started that one yet. That one's up next. I should finish uh, Beauty Queens probably tonight or tomorrow
0: and then
1: I will start
0: circumventing Beauty Queens is actually an excellent audiobook as well. Um, Libba actually reads it herself. Oh, nice! She does all the voices, um, all the footnotes, and I think hearing Beauty Queens read aloud in her voice adds an extra dimension to the humor of Beauty Queens. Um, it just... And, and it, it's it's funny because I feel like Libba Bray has two modes, which is, like, the kind of historical, gothic, supernatural, dark of the Great and Terrible Beauty series and the Diviners. Mm-hmm. And then she has this sort of surreal side, this kind of wacky, almost Monty Python-esque sense of humor mm-hmm. uh, that comes out in books like Going Bovine and Beauty Queens. Um, it's usually when she has something to say um, I just remember reading Going Bovine. I really enjoyed it when when it first came out. Cause, and it could me because it was so different from yeah. A Great and Terrible I Beauty. I should really
1: give it a second shot because
0: I really think that it was more me and less the book. I, I, mean, I do like surreal books. And that surreal sense of humor is, is something that I think Lila and I both share. So getting into Going Bovine wasn't that difficult mm-hmm. for me. Um, and Beauty Queens in particular, I thought, the ridiculousness of it especially like the second half when you get the pirates and everything I just thought you know this is ridiculous over the top but very funny and and especially like all the bits about each of the girls and where they come Mm -hmm. from like Lupa is really good at at those kind of character sketches as well like Mary Lou the one from the Uh Midwest the wild girl I loved her I thought she was so great Um, all of them I just you know and (laughs) all those like funny little commercial breaks that she's inserted into the book as well Mm -hmm. about, like, the hair removal cream and this and that. Um, I just thought they were really, really funny. Mm -hmm. And when Libba reads them in the audiobook, they're hilarious.
1: She's a really versatile writer, which, you know, I think is really interesting. Like you said, she's got those different modes that she writes in, and I think I don't know a lot
0: of writers who do that. Yeah, she does have a lot of range. It's 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 hard to pinpoint. I, I don't think that they're different, mm-hmm. necessarily, or that they're... Like, I wouldn't recognize right.
1: it. Well, I think they're... I mean, I remember... So I had read the Great and Terrible Beauty series, or Sweet... What is the name of the series? Is it Sweet Farthing? What is the... I don't
0: it, know. I think it's actually the Great and Terrible Great Beauty and Terrible series, series, or maybe the, Demma, the Gemma Doyle books. The Gemma Doyle books.
1: Um, I had read yeah. those and really loved them. I think on your recommendation, and then... Um, I had tried going for the vine and that was a bust for me. And then, um, you had told me, Oh my God, we have to read the diviners. You have to read the diviners. And I was like, well, I really like this other series of hers. And so, yeah, I'll totally read it. I didn't know it was horror. I mean, you, I mean, that's <laughs> horror, right? Yeah, yes. it, it
0: is horror. Yeah. yeah, it is.
1: I didn't know that. <laughs> and I don't read horror. I don't watch scary movies. I don't, I don't, I can't even watch Law and Order anymore because I just can't do it I hate being scared um, but I got way too sucked into that book and the characters and everything by the time I realized it was going to scare the shit out of me that like I couldn't <laughs> stop so, so I had to finish it and I was super pregnant at the time that I read it um, and so I couldn't sleep anyway because insomnia was one of my pregnancy symptoms and so I was like not sleeping and like tossing and turning and like having all of these flashbacks to the book and the super creepy things that happen, and it was, like, horrific. And so I can't believe I'm going to read Layer of Dreams, but I am because I enjoy the first one so much, but I'm, like, not prepared to be scared out of my mind again.
0: Yeah, I mean, I actually think the first Diviner's novel was scarier. (laughs) Um, The second one is creepy. Don't get me wrong, it's definitely creepy. Um, But the first one was just so twisted and strange it had that weird kind of like red dragon william blakeian yeah. kind of villain that's like, was scary just i was afraid it was scary to i agree
1: <laughs> when i was reading that book and i was home alone all the time at that point in my life because david was working super late hours um and i was always alone and it i mean it terrified me but to Libba Bray, because I had to keep reading. I thought it was just so excellent, and I loved those characters so much. So I'm back. I, I, I,
0: I, would, I would read anything Libba Bray writes, like literally <laughs> anything she writes. I would read her grocery list. I bet you her grocery list is hilarious.
1: <laughs> this has been the Libba Bray <laughs> Fan Podcast.
0: Yes, it is the Little Ray Fan Podcast. She is fantastic. Also, she has a band, and she's a great voice. And I just a Liverberry fan girl all over Yay! the place. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I think that's it for this week. Uh, if you have any uh, anything else you want to add for the the topics and the subjects that we've covered so far, or... no, I think that's everything. Any other book recommendations or squeeing that you want to put in?
1: Oh, my God. I mean, I could go on and on and on about 8 million other things. Um, If I'm going to recommend one more thing, the thing that I'm obsessed with the most right now is another podcast called Dusted by um, Lonnie Diane Rich and Alistair Stevens, who are the husband and wife team that make up StoryWalk. And all of their podcasts are phenomenal. If you're a writer, you should go read them, read, uh, read them, listen to them. Listen to the light bulb. Listen to all their stuff. They're brilliant. They are excellent um, at story and everything that that entails. Uh, But Dusted, which is the one I'm in particularly, I'm in particularly? The one I am particularly obsessed with at the moment is their Buffy the Vampire podcast, (laughs) where they watch each episode of Buffy the Vampire and then they analyze it beat by beat with some phenomenal literary criticism. Um, and a really hilarious and heartfelt and just super smart uh, commentary. And I'm, I am just, I mean, I can't say enough good things. So if I was going to recommend one more thing, that would be it. <laughs>
0: that sounds that sounds really, really it's good. It's fantastic. I mean, I'm not a huge Buffy fan, but I do love any sort of critical analysis yeah. of media. I mean, they
1: go really in deep. They do have multiple other podcasts, too. They have one um, where they're watching Veronica Mars right now. They have The Lightbulb, which is just kind of their general um podcast about craft and writing and story um they have an outlander podcast um so they have you know like I mean I couldn't even list them all they've got like 15 they're like professional podcasters (laughs) um but they're really I mean they're a great team they play off each other beautifully so smart so funny so insightful um it's really just it's my jam I'm a fangirl for sure
0: well, I guess if there's anything else we can recommend on my end, I have once again fallen down the uh, German-Gothic musical spiral. <laughs> For those who don't know me, um, I have this weird obsession with all things German. <laughs> I love the German language. I love German compound nouns. Um, and I also love German musicals. and The musical theater scene in, well... German, German meaning also Austria, because they speak mm-hmm. German there. Um, the past couple of years, they not a couple of years, I'd say probably the past 15 years, they've produced some really, really amazing Gothic musicals. And Gothic is another one of my things. So the one that I've recently fallen back into is called Tanz der Vampire. It means Dance of the Vampires. It's a musical that was written by Jim Steinman. I don't know if you guys know who Jim Steinman is, but he is the man behind such hits as I Would Do Anything for Love, performed by Meatloaf, oh. uh, Total Eclipse of the Heart, oh my God. performed by Bonnie Tyler, um, It's All Coming Back to Me Now, performed <gasps> by Celine Dion. Oh yes. Or Jeremy Jordan. Google
1: the Jeremy Jordan version of that song.
0: Um, this <laughs> is just turning into like, but, well, let's recommend everything that we love. Yes. Right. So Jim Steinman is pretty, pretty well known for these sort of bombastic over the top kind of ballads. And, um, he wrote an entire musical called, um, Tanz der Vampire. And it's basically, and, and, oh, and in this musical, Total Eclipse of the Heart is sung as a duet <gasps> between a vampire and a young woman named Sarah. Um, it's also entirely in German. Um so if you don't speak German, I do apologize, but it doesn't really matter because it's an entire it's total eclipse of the heart sung as a duet between a vampire and a young girl named Sarah. Um, also in the and I highly recommend that you look up the original cast of Tanster vampire the um, the the main vampire is actually played by Steve Bartman, Steve Barton, who was who originated the role of Raoul on Phantom of the Opera. Um, it just he has a wonderful voice. There's another cast recording. I think it was the Vienna cast. It has Thomas Borchert as Cat von Krolock which I don't love as much. Um, but that's kind of right now what's kind of on 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 loop mm-hmm. for me. <laughs>
1: all right, we'll stop there. We will we will no longer
0: inundate you with all the things that we love. Um, well, that's it for this week yes. then. So um, next week we'll be covering uh, another part of Publishing 101, the submission slash acquisition. Um, As always, if you want more, please subscribe via iTunes, Stitcher, Podcast Pickle, or your podcast provider of choice.
1: Also, if you like us, please rate and review when you get a chance as it helps other listeners find
0: and if you want more pub, pub crawl goodness you can go to our website publishingcrawl.com where we have many more posts and articles about various aspects of reading writing and the publishing industry
1: you can also follow us on twitter at pubcrawl blog as well as on tumblr facebook and instagram at publishingcrawl
0: you can follow me jj at Jones. that's s j a e j o n e s on twitter or my website, sjjones.com. And you can follow me, Kelly, at bookish chick on Twitter or Instagram. And our theme music is Quirky Dog by Kevin McLeod. And our logo is designed by Erin Bowman. She's a Publishing Crawl contributor and author of Vengeance Road, which is available now wherever books are sold.
1: If you have any further questions, comments, or feedback, feel free to email us at publishingcrawl at gmail.com or send us an ask through Tumblr. All right, thanks so much for listening. Bye. Bye.
0: Uh, We're both contributors to... uh, I can't talk today. Bloopers! We have bloopers! (laughs)